electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, AT&T CEO John Stanky on streaming, his company's big payouts to shareholders. My first priority is to get the stock price up so the dividend yield is not 6.9%. And voting rights across the country. Just like AT&T has supported movement along civil rights issues all the way back to the 1960s, we also believe that the right to vote is something that everybody has. It's hard-earned. We've gone to the dogs. The CEO of Petco, Ron Coughlin, says we owe a lot to our four-legged friends. If you look at pets, they helped America get through the pandemic emotionally. 83% of pet parents say that their pets helped them reduce stress during COVID. Those stories plus crypto madness. Pot, Slim Jims, Snickers, and Dogecoin all make sense in this market. And how to talk about Dogecoin. If a digital currency that's made as a joke is actually a better investment than the thing that everybody says is supposed to change the world, what are we talking about here? It's Thursday, April 22nd, 2021. Happy Earth Day. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. And we're going to check out the USA. First up today on the podcast, could things look bearish for Bitcoin? The world's most popular cryptocurrency traded just under $55,000, right, per token yesterday. But one week after setting an all-time high in the excitement over the blockbuster direct listing for Coinbase, the cryptocurrency exchange. So something to note, with this dip, yes, the price is still very high. Bitcoin breached a key technical level earlier this week, when for the first time in a 24-hour period, its price fell below its 50-day moving average. Market technicians, yes, there are such wizards, use that moving average to judge whether investors are optimistic about an asset. There's a big spike down, and and I follow it on Coinbase, uh, Bitcoin. So there are other exchanges, so people have different numbers for highs and lows on any any given day. But it was weird because I saw the big spike down again last night, 51,300. We're at 54,000 now. That's the same low from a couple of days ago. That's the identical number. So that's, I don't know whether it... So technical is actually kicking in here. I can't imagine that there's a support level for... (laughs) Uh, for, for Bitcoin. No, but, there uh, might be. Off the charts with where, that, where that's gone over the course of the there year. There could be. There could be. But it, it did. There was a, like a flush. And that's a pretty big flush. Yep. 54 down to 51.3 and then back up. But that's what we saw, you know, not three months ago, like three days ago. Last, uh, it was over the weekend, wasn't it? Was that when the tweet went out from the IRS? Or not from the IRS, but talking about, not even the IRS. Look, but the Treasury. question is, yeah. Are there a number of big holders who are who are could buying at fifty four? Maybe that's what there could. It's possible that that's all it is. How's doggy? I haven't I haven't looked at uh, doggy coin. Um, you guys watching? Dogecoin it, today. Dogecoin. Uh, Twenty six e. Uh, supposed to be at a dollar yeah. by by pot day, which of course makes sense. And somehow that ties into slim jims. Maybe they meant pot day. Pot next year. slim jims, Snickers, and doggy coin. Doggy coin. <laughs> 
all, all make sense. But isn't in Dogecoin this just to make? Isn't Dogecoin just making a mockery of of all of this? You isn't saw what co- isn't that, You saw which companies it's what, worth more than. It's those like who, it's worth more than American Airlines, isn't it? That go figure. Well, let me see. I, th- I I think that was one of, one of the com- comparisons, wasn't it? Um, uh, I mean, there, there was a great line. Um, in, I read a newsletter of one of our competitors. Uh, Joe Weisenthal at Bloomberg, um, who, who deserves credit for the line, who says that uh, Dogecoin is basically Bitcoin without all the virtue signaling. Let me think. In terms of, in terms of what it's supposed to really all mean. <laughs> and, oh, and I thought uh, it was a pretty great line. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what, I mean, you got Elon with, with uh, Doggy Coin. I mean, I, that, you got that going for you. No, I but I think, I think his point is that, that all of the Bitcoin has this sort of virtue signaling that's trying to take over the world and that it's going to you know, replace money and that's going to do this and do that and da 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 da. Except for, and of course, Dogecoin is just saying what it is. Except for the carbon footprint. Well, that's certainly that, not that, virtue that's a signaling with, with Bitcoin. No, that, that's that, anti That's a different kind of virtue signaling. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I think it's a different kind of virtue signaling. Right. Here's where I, yeah, about the virtue signaling. I guess if you're trying to promote yourself as sort of a anti-establishment, libertarian, anti-fiat uh, money, anti-central planning, no government is big enough to control right. you. I'm moving yep. into the future as we print. I could see that, but that's not what I think of as virtue signalers. Virtue signalers uh, uh, almost invariably are pro. Uh, the, the same, th- the opposite of what I was just saying. Government. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Pro big government, pro, pro efforts to, government. to control what you do. That's what I think of it. See, virtue signaling I, for me is a I huge understand. pejorative. And, and for, for no, Bitcoin, I think, it's the I, opposite. I think he's using it as a pejorative, too, and I'm using it as a pejorative. <laughs> I think the, the, the point of virtue signaling in the broadest context is that effectively you're creating a sort of rationale beyond what the actual thing is. And that's trying no, to suggest other things, right? That, that, and and that is unfair. No, and like that's unfair for Bitcoin. Bitcoin really is that. Bitcoin really is and, that. That's yeah. where. So, but well, he's saying it cynically, well, no. tongue in cheek. I see. I think that, that you could either say. I, I think. I, well, look. Yes. Joe has been out there for a long time and thinks that Bitcoin is just, a, a, you know, a speculative uh, game. <laughs> and, really? and I think How's there's a lot of people that? who. Well, I guess he. I by guess the way, you want to hear something fascinating that I also learned related to this. Which is a better investment? If you had invested in, in Dogecoin in 2013 when it was created, or Bitcoin when, oh, it, when it was created? Isn't it 8,100? Dogecoin. It's, it's gone more, Dogecoin. It's up more than, yeah, Dogecoin since 19. Right. It's but, gone but up 8,000% or, 8, the, or, or something. The, the point is day. that if a, if a digital currency that's made as a joke is actually a better investment than the thing that everybody says is supposed to change the world, right. what are we talking about well, here? Well, that came at a pen. It came at a fraction of a penny, and it's now got a market cap of fifty billion. It's got an eighty-one hundred percent return, but it doesn't have a market cap of a trillion dollars. That's twenty times I, larger. I'm just I, so it's not really comparable to, to to Bitcoin. Just in proffering terms of, the argument. I know, but a trillion is a lot different than fifty billion. Fifty billion, we could. I mean, you get you know, you get a uh, an AI cloud, whatever. You get the diner. It, it can, yeah. I mean, the, you get the diner in New Jersey that was worth. You get the every one of these companies is valued at fifty billion. For the, the seed, the seed money that the VC, the VCs are raising are valuing all these social media companies. 
your clubhouse, Andrew, is what's that thing valued at right now? What are, what are they supposedly four billion dollars? Only four? Oh, I thought that I thought it would be. But some of these things, I don't I haven't been on any of these things. You've been on all these Sorkin. You've been doing this stuff. Patreon and Station Head and Discord because, it, you know, yep. I, I immediately thought of you because it connects celebrities with their fans. And I mean, I can't imagine anyone that, that could do. Uh, I mean, that that is that's got you written all over it, man. I mean, could, do you have you been on any of these things where where you can be with viewers and stuff like that? You haven't done that. All, all of my fans who want to be with me. Right. right. Um, no, I've I got look. You've been I on Patrick. Have I you think, been? Oh, let me let's Patreon's go down have, the list. Patreon. You've been Patreon's, on Discord. Yes, but that's a different type of product. Station head. That, that, Becky, you've been uh, no. on any of these? Patreon. Patreon. We've uh, I've spoken with the the Patreon. We've had people. we've had them that, on that's before. Where, that's a different it's a product that's, for the arts. Yeah. It's a, okay. Right. All right. Well, I I didn't think there was any social media left. I thought that the next big thing was we'd have to leave that behind. I was hoping. Uh, but the, so there's still a lot of nuances and different uh, takes on how to do that, I guess. But you have to be social. That's the big problem. Let's tell everybody about what's going on with the SEC this morning, because they're now reportedly considering some uh, pretty tough requirements, new disclosure requirements for investment firms. According to Bloomberg, uh, the regulator is exploring how to increase transparency for the types of derivative bets that led to that Archegos Capital Management uh, stock scandal, as well as ways to shed some light on short bets like those linked to the run-up in GameStop shares earlier this year. So it'll be very interesting to see what uh, that ultimately looks like. And in a related story in Credit Suisse this morning, they are falling and falling hard over close to 7% right now. The company reporting a net loss of $275 million for the first quarter, hurt significantly uh, by heavy losses in the collapse of Archegos Capital. The bank's CEO uh, telling Jeff Cutmore that this was one of the best quarters in the history of Credit Suisse. Could you just talk to those before we talk about the hit that you've taken from Archegos and Greensill? Absolutely. You're absolutely right that our first quarter earnings uh, on an underlying basis, excluding the Archegos loss, was one of our best quarters in the history of Credit Suisse. Definitely the best quarter in the last 10 years. Well, aside from Archegos Capital, so just if don't look over here, but if you don't look over here, it's great. On an it's adjusted great. basis. Right. Right. The bank said uh, it had uh, exited 97 percent of it's its trading positions re- related to Archegos and expects now to report an additional loss of $655 million in the second quarter. And Credit Suisse also plans to issue new shares to counter the damage. So they're going to be issuing new shares to, uh, uh, to, to sell some more stock to, ca- to try to bolster the capital position. Also, some new requirements have been imposed by Switzerland's uh, bank regulator. And uh, apparently there's a number of investigations going on uh, as well. So uh, the story is not over yet. And uh, the fallout continues. Today, April 22nd, is Earth Day, and this is also a big week for sustainability, especially in D.C. President Biden is hosting a two-day climate summit virtually to encourage commitments to green futures around the world. Just yesterday at the International Institute of Finance, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen surprised some folks by paving the way a bit for the Biden administration's new plans to combat climate change. President Biden has outlined an ambitious strategy to transition the United States to net zero emissions and has mobilized the entire government to achieve it. At Treasury, our goal is to take this whole of government approach 
and turn it into a whole of economy approach. We recognize the importance of public sector investment, particularly in green infrastructure, to facilitate the transition to net zero emissions. Today, the White House announced an aggressive environmental goal. Here's CNBC's Diana Olick reporting on that news from Washington. Later this morning, President Biden will announce an aggressive new target for the U.S., a 50 to 52 percent reduction from 2005 levels of greenhouse gas pollution by 2030. That, according to administration officials, this is nearly twice the pledge from President Obama in 2015. Now, the announcement will be made during the Leaders Summit on Climate in order to, quote, challenge the world on increasing ambition and combating the climate crisis. Forty world leaders will be in attendance. Heads of state from China, Russia, Europe and Canada, just to name a few. The administration is framing this as part of its Building Back Better initiative, specifically creating new jobs across all industries. So what does that really mean? Well, investing in infrastructure and innovation, advancing environmental justice, making products in America in order to bolster domestic supply chains. Officials specifically cited clean energy products like EV batteries. Now, the initiatives will spread across all sectors, agriculture, housing, energy, transportation, construction. And that 50 to 52 percent range is in line or slightly even over the 50 percent goal that a slew of corporations, including Ford, Shell, Amazon, Pfizer, Hilton, Facebook, asked for more than 400 of them signing a letter to the president. It is all part of the path to achieving net zero emissions by 2050. We are expecting to see even more details today as the summit kicks off and, of course, additional input from global leadership. Coming up on Squawk Pod, AT&T's John Stanky on the dynamic job of a telecom CEO today. Spectrum, streaming wars, voting rights, and it's not TV, it's HBO, and it's heading to a lower ad-supported price point. The reality is, is not everybody is in the same socioeconomic dynamic. I actually believe the glory days are still in front of us. They're not behind us. Don't touch that dial. We'll be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Becky Quick and Joe Kernan. AT&T out with first quarter results this morning. The company beating Wall Street's estimates on both the top and the bottom lines. Free cash flow was up by more than 50 percent year over year to five point nine billion dollars. And HBO Max is also in focus this morning. The streaming service and HBO pro- uh, proper added two point seven million U.S. subscribers in the quarter. Total domestic subscriptions now stand at more than 44 million. Joining us right now to talk much more about this is AT&T CEO John Stanky. And, and John, it's good to have you with us today. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Becky. How are you doing? It's good to see you. Doing pretty good. Good. Um, according to Wall Street, you're doing pretty well, too. These numbers on most metrics were better than the street had been anticipating, uh, had been better than anticipated. What, uh, what do you think is the highlight for you this quarter? Look, uh, I think it's the consistency, number one, and number two, that we're doing it across each of the three areas that we've indicated to our investor base that are important to us. 
demonstrated that we can get share in the wireless business, and we did it in the right way. I think the fundamental metrics underlying the wireless business were strong. Demonstrated that in our broadband business, where we're investing in fiber, that we've got a great product that customers love, and we can grow that. And then the HBO Max numbers are just really impressive. The team's executed incredibly well with the strategy we put in place at the end of last year. And, you know, you got to feel really good about that balanced performance. And as you said at the opening, when you do that, you generate more cash than you did, you know, the quarter last year. That's a good thing. Let's stick into those HBO Max numbers a little bit. I think the, the street's particularly keen on, on hearing more about that. Um, Netflix had some disappointing subscriber numbers for the first quarter. Were these numbers better than you had anticipated? And, and, and what really happened here? What did you see? Well, uh, you know, first of all, Netflix has a wonderful business. They have a different business. They're obviously much more mature in the domestic U.S. streaming market, which is largely where HBO Max plays right now, as you know, in June. We'll be launching both an AVOD product in the United States that allows us to price differently, as well as launching through the course of the second half of this year, 60 international markets, which starts to open up our opportunity for growth outside of the U.S., our domestic business is still scaling. And as we've said, we fully expect that there's a receptive market for at least two thirds of U.S. households that are going to want, you know, more than one streaming service. And Netflix is a, a very capable and, and solid product that I'm sure many households are going to choose to have. And we'd like HBO Max to be one of those products. So we're really comfortable. As you know, we guided up our total subscriber numbers in our analyst day five weeks ago. Uh, what you're seeing is the confidence in that guide up in our quarterly numbers. So we weren't surprised by the strength. We're really pleased with what we've seen. But I think most importantly, the team that we've put together is doing a really nice job executing on the kind of competencies and capabilities that we have in our product and building the product that's right for us. John, when you say you're, you're going to be introducing a video-on-demand product in the United States for different pricing, I, I take it you mean lower pricing, because HBO Plus is already pretty expensive at $15 relative to what your peers are offering. What are you thinking about with that, and what will that mean to your ARPU, your available revenue per user, which is right now pretty high at, at, at better than $11.72, right? Yeah, it's, it's really impressive that the ARPU is as strong as it is, and it's one of the reasons we wanted to share that. Not only is it strong ARPU with the strong growth coming against it, if you think about that, these are, these are subscribers that are coming in at you know, pricing that's really, really good. And that allows us a lot of flexibility as we scale this product and add content to it over time. So we're very, very comfortable with that. But the reality is, is not everybody is in the same socioeconomic dynamic. So the AVOD product, the advertising-supported product that launches in June, allows us to get to an entry price point for virtually similar or identical content. And as a result of that, it'll broaden the market share that we can ultimately attack. And uh, the, the reality, whether a customer chooses to buy the ad-supported product or buy the straight subscription product, it's accretive in the same ways to our business because we offset the lower entry point, obviously, for the subscription price with advertising supported. So we just want to meet the customer on their terms where it makes sense for them. And we actually think that's a real strength for our product moving forward, having both those options. Is that a, a, an acknowledgement, though, that the, the higher price point only has so many people that it can eventually draw in? No, not at all. I think from the time we started, Becky, 
we were pretty clear that we were big fans of you know what I refer to as dual monetization models, models that allow for a subscription fee as well as an advertising uh, way to make money. And, and in, as a result of that, we always had the intent of doing both. And if you think about media over the long haul, everybody likes broad choice in media. I mean, that's really the strength of Netflix. If, if you think about what occurred, much of the early content that Netflix put out in their product was content that was supported in dual monetization models. It had both subscription and advertising associated with it. And it's what allowed for all these hours of production uh, to be invested in. And so I believe over the long haul, if people want broad choice and they want to be able to see the widest selection of content, being able to do both ad supported and subscription supported is good for the industry in allowing for that choice. And it's also good for the customer based on where they are and their willingness to pay to move into products. So we actually think this is a strength. It's it's by no means an admission of, you know, if something didn't work out the right way. It's always been the plan. Hey, John, we had the conversation earlier about uh, about HBO and the glory days and, uh, you know, how past performance isn't isn't guaranteed. And, and there was a time, I think, when HBO really set the standard and didn't have as much competition. Then we had Showtime and all these now Netflix and everything. Are, are, are you confident and ready to spend the money as a you know, kind of a staid uh, telecommunications firm to to put up the money necessary for the creative talent? Do you have the right people in charge? Should, should uh, shareholders think that you've got a handle on that, on who's running the content side of AT&T for, um, for HBO? I, I, Joe, I think you just look at the results, and the answer to that is yes, we're comfortable and we're doing a really good job of that. I, and I actually believe the glory days are still in front of us. They're not behind us. Uh, they're different days, and the product is different. And I think if you look at the history of HBO, it's gone through reinvention over its years. And this is just the next chapter of reinvention. It, it started out as a service that largely replayed theatrical movies. And then it moved into, at one point, scripted television to augment and complement that. And then it did its move into actually offering a degree of streaming that was available to a customer. This is just the next chapter in HBO. And, you know, every decade, co companies need to step back and reinvent themselves and offer the customer a better value proposition. And that's what we're about doing. We've got a tremendously talented creative team. Casey Bloys, who is running all of our content development for our streaming service across WarnerMedia, incredibly talented individual, has been with HBO for many years. He has a broader palette to paint on now. He can move beyond not just the sensibilities of what an HBO customer might like, but more broadly because of the HBO Max labeling and what we're able to do. I feel really good about it, and we're really supportive, and you see the numbers that are coming in. It's hard not to get excited about it. But you, you want to maintain the dividend. You want to uh, build out your networks and make everything great with, with wireless. You want to do 5G. Uh, I, I, the criticism is always that Verizon has a, an easier go of it because they can keep their eye on the ball of just of just one thing. I, I personally think Vestberg would love to be, you know, going to the Oscars and stuff like that. But but is, is there any criticism? Is that valid at all that, that you've got too many things on your plate and, and you know, expensive things, expensive development, content, all that, and it, that you're spread too thin? Well, look, we get? We have a management team that is capable in each of their areas, and we don't, uh, you know, I'm not making the decisions on every operating 
dynamic that's going on in the company day in and day out. I've got really capable leaders running the communications business. I've got a really capable leader running the media business. And, and they're responsible for making those right calls, and I do the stitching and the knitting together where it needs to be stitched and knitted together. And so uh, do we have a few more issues that come up, and are the days a little bit more dynamic than maybe a singularly focused business? Oh, sure, I would acknowledge that that's the case. But the trick is to have the right individuals in place who make the right decisions. And I'll go back to the results to suggest I think we're demonstrating that we can do that and carry it forward, and I feel really comfortable with where we're at. John, on that count, though, it does give you more things to keep your eye on. And I guess I'd ask you, we had Hans Vestberg on yesterday from Verizon. He said very cleanly that, one, his first priority is to make sure he's reinvesting in the business. Second is to grow the dividend. We have a very clear capital prioritization with the board. Number one, invest in the business, and that's what we're really doing right now. Secondly, is to put the board in a position that they can continue to increase the dividend. We have increased the dividend the last 14 years. I feel that with the cash generation we have and the prudence of financially we're doing, uh, that shouldn't be a problem for us to put the board in that, to continue that. Your dividend right now is yielding 6.9%. What would you tell shareholders who look at that dividend? Is that something that is... Number one priority for you, number two, number three. How, how do you kind of balance all of those eggs? My first priority is to get the stock price up so the dividend's not, the yield is not 6.9%. And, uh, you know, that's what I'd like to do to fix the problem. <laughs> so uh, that's what this management team is focused on. And if we keep executing in the consistent fashion we are now, that problem takes care of itself with math. In terms of how much you're willing to put towards 5G, I think you guys spent $23 billion at the, the last big spectrum that was just uh, took place earlier this year. How much are you looking for the next one that comes up in about seven months' time for that 5G spectrum? How important is that auction going to be? Yeah, we actually spent a little bit more than $23 billion, Becky. We just made a $23 billion payment, which was the first payment that we have to make, the majority of it. But you know, we still have a little bit to go as we get down the road in the clearing of some of the spectrum we acquired. Um, you know, look, we, uh, we feel very comfortable with where we stand right now. We were very deliberate in making sure that we could get spectrum in what I would call both tranches of that auction, the group of the little bit of spectrum that's available early, and then that that comes later after the current incumbents clear out of it. So we're balanced in how fast we can bring that to market. Uh, you're alluding to another auction that will occur later this year. Uh, it certainly isn't the same amount of spectrum, but it has, you know, other pros and cons around it. One of the pros is that it will probably come out into market a bit faster. And so we're certainly intrigued by that. And we think it could be a very nice complement to what we have. Uh, it's very important for us to make sure that we maintain pace in the industry. Uh, you know, we're doing really well. I think you probably saw some of the performance tests that have come out and one time they'll be telling you that AT&T is in the lead on 5G. Another time it'll be T-Mobile. But the reality is, is these networks are all performing really well and getting better every day. And we're keeping pace with that. And we'll participate at the end of the year at a level that we think keeps pace with it and allows us to continue to be competitive in the market and enjoy the kind of success we're having right now based on how our network is performing and customers choosing to come to AT&T at an accelerated rate. Hey, John, corporate leaders have been asked to, to weigh in more and more on societal issues. It, it's been something we've seen pretty frequently that's taken place over the class, course of the last year. I, I know you, in your home state there's some legislation being considered to take a look at some of the voting um, 
voting rights. Um, it, it's something that both Dell and American Airlines in, in Texas have, have come out and criticized. What do you think about that? What do you think about corporate CEOs being asked to weigh in on this? And do you have a take on anything that you see happening when it comes to societal issues, when it comes to voting rights? Well, I think broadly, uh, if you're running a large corporation right now within the context of our society, you have to step back and observe that we are clearly in a different chapter of our existence. And as I think about what things are going to look like going forward, it's, it's something I'm spending a lot of time thinking about, which is how do you keep your employee base with their eye on the ball, which is to come to work and support what the business needs to do what our customers require and get along with each other and work with each other while the noise level outside of the company every day is getting higher and less constructive. And that balancing act is a really difficult balancing act and I think it's going to get more challenging as we move forward. What I'm electing to do is to make sure that we keep an open dialogue with our employees. And as I think about my responsibility as a CEO, my first obligation is to my 230,000 employees, it's to the shareholders that own this company, and it's to ensure that we do the right thing by those folks within the communities that we operate in and getting that balance right. And it's a tough call every day. The best way I can deal with it is have a transparent and open conversation with my employees, which I'm endeavoring to do. It's that dialogue that's most important first. And when we think we need to speak out on something that impacts those 230,000 employees and impacts the well-being of AT&T over the long haul, those are the things that I think you now start to say, maybe that's the right time for me to say something. On the issue of voting rights, uh, fairly early in the process, I came out with a fairly declarative statement that said, look, um, just like AT&T has supported movement along civil rights issues all the way back to the 1960s, uh, modernization of our benefit plans to recognize changes in individuals' lifestyles, all these things that we've been very progressive in supporting and on the lead on, we also believe that the right to vote is something that everybody has. It's hard-earned, and it should be straightforward, easy, and secure. And we made it very clear that that's our position. We also acknowledge that there is a lot of differences that occur from state to state, and we can't be an expert in everything that's going on in a state we have elected officials and we have civic officials that are experts in those things that can do that. And what we've elected to do is work with other businesses through the Business Roundtable, through local chambers of commerce and, and national chambers of commerce to ensure that we can get our resources pooled, some expertise brought to this and lobby in a way that we do the things that are the right things. We want to track businesses in the states we operate in. We want our employees to feel good about that. And we want policy to match that. Right now, your stock is up by about 3.8%. So you are making some progress and chipping away at that 6.9% dividend yield. John, I want to thank you for being with us today. We appreciate it. Thanks, Becky. I appreciate you having me in. Next on Squawk Pod. <laughs> Pet parents, this one's for you. We're talking to the CEO of Petco. I would argue we're a unicorn. Uh, we had a huge benefit from COVID. There were 3 million incremental new pets. And obviously that lifted our business. And blast from a past when we used to leave the house. Take your kid to work day? Kyle, good morning. How are you? Sleepy. Whatever job you need to do out there, grab the right tool to get it done. The new F-150. 
with an available hybrid engine and up to 7.2 kilowatts of pro power on board to power things on the go. It's not a tool you'll hang in a tool shed, but you can certainly use it to build one. The new 2024 Ford F-150. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Available starting early 2024. Optional features the owner's manual for important operating instructions. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back to Squawk Pod from CNBC. Corporate America is focusing on what back to work looks like. You've probably gotten some emails about your empty offices. Well, pandemic puppies are a thing, and employees are speaking up for their furry friends, saying pet-friendly environments are a top priority when it comes to reopening. And Joe Kernan's dogs, Freddie, Gunther, and Pongo, here is actual audio sent to us exclusively from Joe's German Shepherds, couldn't agree more. Here's Joe. Many are wondering if our pet should come back with us now. Joining us, Ron Coglin. He's the CEO of Petco. Only certain dogs, uh, maybe little ones, Ron. Is that, is that what we're seeing? Uh, or, or gentle golden retrievers? But we saw what happened when, <laughs> when President Biden tried to, uh, to bring Major to the White House. There can be some issues. My, my uh, 80-pounder, Yummy, comes to the office every single day with me, and he, he's a yellow lab. So we, we firmly believe that, uh, you know, if you look at pets, they helped America get through the pandemic emotionally. 83% of pet parents say that their pets helped them reduce stress uh, during COVID. And when people are contemplating going back to work, 69% of them are saying, you know what, I want to bring my pet, pet with me. So uh, I think employers would be well-served to uh, make their uh, offices more pet friendly. A cat seems like a no-brainer, Ron. That's, I, I don't see why every office doesn't have an office cat. You know what I mean? Stay with me. We have eight of them, actually. <laughs> you have eight. We, we have eight of them here. I, I have some office fish in my office. We have some reptiles right outside my office. So uh, they make for a better workplace. And uh, actually, you know, one of the interesting things that came out of our survey is 41% of people said they'd actually shift companies to go to a workplace that's uh, pet friendly. I saw that. That that is amazing. And you know, I've had kids, I've had pets. They're not kids, but they're the closest thing to kids in terms of the, the, the real. I mean, it's gotten to the point where I almost worry about when I get one because I don't ever want to say goodbye. Uh, it's just it's so heartbreaking um, uh, when that happens. But I can't believe someone you can't have. You wouldn't suggest Becky has an office fish with the office cat. That might uh, that that might cause <laughs> we uh, have a fish, too. We have a fish. We keep the lid on the bowl. You keep the, yeah, exactly. You just need to make sure you're you're careful with that. But you're very lucky to get 16 great years with uh, Pongo. I have, Pongo, uh, yeah, I have the my, little my one. My dog Yummy's 12 and a half, so uh, <laughs> I'm very happy about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. 
In terms of, of metrics for your company, what, what can you tell us that you saw during the, the pandemic, like actual numbers? It, it, yeah. you, you're like a stay-at-home like stay stock. Uh, I would argue we're a unicorn. Uh, we had a huge benefit from COVID. There were 3 million incremental new pets, and obviously that lifted our business. Uh, we reported uh, for the full year back uh, about a month ago. Uh, and uh, we had 17% top line, 100% digital growth. But at the same time, with these 3 million new pets, and actually, if you look today, there's increased adoptions, there's backlogs at breeders. So there's more of the same in the first half of 21. And guess what? You know, you might only get your gym equipment once, but these pets are an annuity. They're going to need to be fed. They're going to need to be groomed. They're going to need to be vaccinated. So they're an annuity for the pet industry for a decade or more. So uh, the, the metrics are, are good for our business from a long-term standpoint. The, uh, the, the, the things that you retail, what, what type of things became most popular during the, during the pandemic? But people were taking better care of their pets because they're home. So they're, the supplies, balls, toys, treats. Um, but also they were saying, you know what? Uh, Fluffy's ready for a groom or, or yeah. they were more on top of their vaccinations. But we firmly believe that that increased bond isn't something that's going to dissipate when people go back to the office. First of all, less people are going to go back to the office less frequently. But also, this is part of why we want to make sure that the offices are pet friendly to keep that bond going and to reduce the employee's stress. You know, the, we, the heartbreaking things we see after a natural disaster or something, we forget about pets sometimes. And, and uh, everybody is going to go back and they're going to be like, where is everyone? So uh, they give so much uh, to us. I, I think it's incumbent upon us to, to think about these things and, and what we uh, we need to do for them. I, uh, when, the, when the movie All Dogs Go to Heaven came out, I was like, what does that mean? And it's very clear to me what it means now, because they all do. They're, they're just, there's, there's not a bad, uh, animals, there's not a bad animal with, with mal intent that's ever been created, I don't think. Do you, Ron? I'm going to get to you. I'm going to start right. crying. <laughs> I, I, I tell you, yummy sitting next to me is one of the best parts of my job every uh, single day. It's one of the big impediments was commercial uh, real estate, and there's never been a better time for employers to have leverage. Yeah, that's interesting to think that there would be, be pet-friendly offices and such. As I said, not not for all pets. We'll not be bringing Gunther uh, anywhere near people. Thank you, Ron. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Ron Cargo. He makes Major look like a uh, uh, like a docile little Major lamb. Biden. Uh, the softer side of Joe. By the way, it is a special day. Companies across the nation are celebrating Take Your Child to Work Day, or as we like to call it here, Take Your Child to the Spare Bedroom Day. Annual festivities are going virtual again this year, and I'm joined by my son, Kyle. Kyle, good morning. How are you? Um, sleepy. <laughs> a little early here. It is, but uh, Kyle's been learning all about the markets, too. We've been doing that by playing Monopoly the last couple of weeks. Um, we've had some vicious battles. They've gone a long time. And Kyle, I'll just ask you one thing. What, what have you learned from Monopoly lately? I buy the expensive properties, and, and then I don't have to do anything for the rest of the game. Just rake it in, right? And that's Squawk Pod for today on this Earth Day and Take Your Kids to Virtual Work Day. 
Isn't that every day? Thanks for being here. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern to get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears. Subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. On Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating or write a review. Spread the word about Squawk Pod. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. Whatever job you need to do out there, grab the right tool to get it done. The new F-150 with an available hybrid engine and up to 7.2 kilowatts of pro power on board to power things on the go. It's not a tool you'll hang in a tool shed, but you can certainly use it to build one. The new 2024 Ford F-150. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Available starting early 2024. Optional features the owner's manual for important operating instructions.